Welcome to the preaching and teaching ministry of Second Baptist Church, where we exist to delight in God, display His grace, and declare His gospel all through Jesus Christ our Lord. We can be reached at www.2bcmtv.org or by calling 618-244-1706. We trust you'll be encouraged and challenged by the message you're about to hear. Father, we come this morning into your presence. Grateful, Lord, for the promise that Christ has risen from the dead. And he's alive today, seated at your right hand. And so we come to worship. We come to give him the glory that he alone is worthy of. And so, Father, now as we come to your word, we ask that you would open our hearts, open our minds, you would speak through the preaching of your word this morning, and you would shine the light on the glory of Christ as we behold him this morning. Open eyes, open ears, may our hearts receive the truth of your word this morning, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. If you have a Bible, take it and turn to Acts chapter 2. Happy Easter to you. Christ is risen. And I am delighted this morning to get to celebrate the resurrection of Jesus with you as we look together at Acts chapter 2. We're going to look this morning at verses 22 to 36. Acts chapter 2. You know, church, it is no secret that we are living in uncertain times. These are difficult days, some would say unprecedented days. And many of us, I know, are concerned about the future. And as you look around, it seems that the world is spinning out of control. There are pandemics, there are wars. There's political and economic turmoil. Not only that, you look around the world and it seems everywhere you look, everything that's happening, whether it be in the Ukraine, whether it be what's going on in Washington, no doubt these are difficult days. And I don't want to suggest that they aren't. And the gravity of that, the weight of that, it can feel very heavy at times. After all, what will the future hold? And so I think it's very helpful this morning for us to take a step back and to remind ourselves on this Easter Sunday that there are some events that have happened in the history of the world that are far more significant than these. Events that dwarf all of those other events. And that doesn't mean these current events aren't hard or difficult or heavy, but it does mean, I think, that it helps us to put them into perspective. And this morning, here in Acts chapter 2, the events that I want us to consider together today are what I think and what the Bible thinks to be the two most important events in the history of the world, the cross and the empty tomb, the, the Good Friday and Easter Sunday. 
Because these events, they have not only altered history, these events have implications for eternity. In fact, the entire Christian faith hinges on these two events. It is no exaggeration to say that these two events are the most important events in the history of the world. That Jesus of Nazareth died and three days later he rose again from the dead. And so these events, they change everything. But I, I also want us to be reminded of these events this morning because in light of all of the chaos and turmoil that is going on in this world, we can rest assured everything is going according to plan. Yes, this world seems as though it's spinning out of control, but everything is going according to plan. And the reason I know that is because, as we'll see here in Acts chapter 2, if the two most important, two most significant events in the history of the world went exactly according to God's plan, then no matter whatever else may be going on in your life or in this world today, church, we can rest assured. And we can trust Him. And we have hope because the resurrection changes everything. Everything is going according to plan. Let's see it together in Acts chapter 2. If you have your place there, let me invite you to stand with me out of honor for the reading of God's word. Beginning in verse 22. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst. As you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. You crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. For David says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope. For you will not abandon my soul to Hades, or let your Holy One see corruption. You've made known to me the paths of life, and you will make me full of gladness with your presence. Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David, that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet, and knowing that God had sworn with an oath that to him that one he would set one of his son, descendants on the throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses. Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Let all the house of Israel know, therefore, for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. May God bless the reading and the preaching of his word. You can be seated. If there's one thing that the early church understood, 
it is that the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead is at the very center of everything. In fact, if you were to just briefly skim through the book of Acts, perhaps this afternoon, one of the things that you would realize very quickly is that the cross and the resurrection are at the very center of the early church's theology and their preaching. You see it here in Acts chapter 2 as well as in almost every single chapter of this book. The early church understood that Christianity rises and falls on these two great events, the, the cross and the empty tomb. And here in Peter's sermon at Pentecost, we see their significance now on full display. And we see that both of these events, they were promised and purposed and planned by God. Beloved, this was no accident. It wasn't as if Jesus were simply at the wrong place at the wrong time. It wasn't as if he were merely a victim of circumstance. No. This is the unfolding, unchanging plan of God. Everything is going according to plan. In fact, Jesus himself promised this would happen prior to his death and resurrection. Three times, if you remember in the Gospels, he tells his disciples on three different occasions that he is going up to Jerusalem and he's going to suffer and die and rise again. Matthew chapter 20, verse 17 And as Jesus was going up to Jerusalem, he took the twelve disciples aside. And on the way, he said to them, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified, and he will be raised on the third day. Everything is going according to plan. And here now in Acts chapter 2, the very first ever recorded post-resurrection sermon the Apostle Peter lays out for us here this unfolding plan of God. Acts 2, notice it begins with Pentecost. That, that word Pentecost, it comes from a Greek word that simply means 50. Because Pentecost, being one of three of the major annual feasts of the Jews, it was celebrated 50 days after the first fruits of the harvest, later to be 50 days after Passover. And so then, just seven weeks prior to this event, Jesus, he had been publicly tried and condemned and crucified on a Roman cross. If you remember, he had told his disciples upon his resurrection to go to Jerusalem and to wait. And that's exactly what we see is happening as the book of Acts opens. And here now, at Pentecost, some really strange things begin to happen. Chapter 2, verse 1, notice there, when the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place, and suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting, and divided tongues as of fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. So loud, rushing winds, tongues of fire, and then most notably, they began to speak in different languages. Jews from all over the known world 
making this pilgrimage feast to Pentecost are now beginning to hear the disciples praise God in their own native tongues, their own languages. And so the crowd, it's no wonder that they begin to ask, notice in verse 12, and all were amazed and perplexed at saying to one another, what does this mean? What's going on here? And in response, Peter gets up now in front of this crowd of thousands of people. And he basically gives them a three-point sermon. Three points. See? It's biblical. Here you just thought preachers weren't very creative. No, three points. And we know his sermon has three points because he addresses the crowd at each of his three points. Point number one Notice verse 14, men of, it, of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem. And then he quotes from Joel chapter 2 as his sermon text and unpacks what it means. Point number 2, notice in verse 22, men of Israel, hear these words. And then he quotes from Psalm 16 as his sermon text and explains what it means as he talks about the cross and the empty tomb. And then finally, point number 3, you see down in verse 29, where he addresses them as brothers. And he quotes from Psalm 110 in verses 34 and 35 to speak of Christ's exaltation. And he explains what it means. So it's a three-point sermon. Probably take you three minutes to read this sermon, but this wasn't all of the sermon because, in fact, we see in verse 40, with many other words, he bore witness. Here's a sermon. So his first point, he talks about the Spirit's coming. Look there, verses 14 to 21, and that these tongues, these languages, were all an indication of what Joel had prophesied had come true. Verse 20, that the day of the Lord was at hand. The day of the Lord. Verse 17, they were now entering into the last days. So this is a major turning point in salvation history. And now the Spirit of God has been poured out on all flesh, just as God had promised. This is what's happening. This is what's going on. And so notice in verse 21, Peter says, Now, now is the time for everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. And no doubt, his Jewish audience, they would have loved to hear this sermon up to this point. Because then, sermon points 2 and 3, notice in verses 22 to 36, Peter's sermon now takes an unexpected turn. And he moves now from talking about the coming of the Spirit to the coming of Christ. And he begins to explain to them now, based on events that have just happened, that this Lord, whom they are to call upon in order to be saved, in verse 21, is none other than Jesus of Nazareth. In fact, that's the conclusion to his sermon. Look down in verse 36. He says, let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. So what Peter does here in the latter half of his sermon, verses 22 to 36, is he shows how the life, death, 
resurrection and ascension of Christ proves that Jesus is Lord. In fact, the sermon is really just an unpacking of the gospel. It's, it's an outline of the gospel. And Peter tells him, it's all according to plan. And the lingering question of verse 21 is, who is the Lord that they are to call upon in order to be saved? And if you can believe it, I have three points. First, I want you to notice a life and death planned by God. A life and death planned by God. Notice verses 22 to 23. You, you cannot read Peter's sermon here and not see that God is center stage here. That he is the one who is acting here. He is the one who is accomplishing here. In fact, notice there in verse 22, he says, Men of Israel, hear these words, Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God, with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him. Verse 23, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. Verse 24, God raised him up. Verse 30, God has sworn with an oath. Verse 36, God has made him both Lord and Christ. Beloved, it's all God. It's all God's doing. It's all according to his plan. And so notice that from the very beginning here, this, this glorious reminder that the gospel is the good news of all that God did to save us. It is all what Jesus has done in our salvation. It is his life, his death, his resurrection. The gospel is a message of good news of God's saving acts in Jesus. Which means the gospel is finished. It is fixed. It is done. It is accomplished. It is not what I do. It is not what I perform. It is not how faithful I am. No, it is what God did in Jesus. And that never changes. And we see this is all God's doing. And notice there in verse 22, Peter begins here first by reminding us of what God did by first showing us the life of Jesus. The life of Jesus. Look at verse 22. Notice his life and ministry were attested to by God. Verse 22. Men of Israel, hear these words, Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him. So first just notice, I know this seems rather obvious, but Peter wants to remind us that the Lord of verse 21, which if you go back to Joel 2, is Yahweh, it's all caps, Lord, became a man. God became a man. Verse 22, a man attested to you by God. Yes, he was more than a man, but Peter wants us to know, he wants them to know, in Jesus, God became a man. This is incarnation. Jesus, the God-man. In fact, look there at verse 22. He is Jesus of Nazareth. The God-man had a hometown. 
He was from Nazareth, a living, breathing man in history and in time and in space. Christianity is rooted in a historical man, the God-man, Jesus of Nazareth. He was a man. But he wasn't only a man. Look there, verse 22. He was a man attested to by God. Now, what does that mean? Attested to. Attested. It means he was proven to be someone. He was, he was demonstrated to be someone unique. Verse 22. A man attested by God, notice, with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him. So, Peter says this ministry of Jesus, really more specifically the miracles of Jesus, they, they proved, they testified to his unique identity. His works given to him by his father revealed that he was in fact the very son of God. He was the long-awaited promised Messiah because the scriptures foretold of works of signs of miracles that the Messiah would do when he showed up. For example, John chapter 2, when Jesus turns the water into wine, it's not just a cute wedding story. It's actually a fulfillment of what the Lord would do when he comes. Isaiah chapter 26 and verse 6, on the mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food and a feast of well-aged wine when God shows up. Or Isaiah 35 and verse 5, when Messiah comes, then the eyes of the blind shall be open and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap like a deer and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. That's what's going to happen when Messiah shows up and he heals the lame, and he heals the blind, and he heals the mute, and he heals the deaf. Or the religious leaders, if you remember, ask Jesus in Mark chapter 2, who can forgive sins but God alone? And Jesus replies, so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. I say, pick up your bed and go home, and he walks. The works of Jesus all prove that he was who he said he was, and they couldn't be denied. In fact, look there, verse 22. He says, a man attested to you by God that God did through him in your midst as you yourselves know. They saw it. It was undeniable proof that Jesus was from God. And Peter says in verse 36, notice, it's because he is both Lord and Christ. So his life attested to who he was. But then, after he focuses on his life, his ministry, notice in verse 23, Peter now turns to his death. He turns to the cross. He turns to Good Friday. In fact, he turns to the sovereign plan of God. And what we see here is that the cross, as ugly and as shameful and as unjust and evil as it was, it was all by God's design. 
It was all part of his plan. Look at verse 23. His death was according to the plan of God. Verse 23. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. But beloved, the cross was by divine sovereignty. He was delivered up, meaning he was delivered up to die. By whom? Who delivered him up? Well, verse 23, God did. God delivered him up. He was delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. The definite plan, meaning it was a plan that couldn't be changed. It was a plan that couldn't be altered. It was a plan that couldn't be stopped, that couldn't be hindered. No, no. He was delivered up according to the definite plan of God. This was by God's design. And verse 23, notice, he was delivered up according to the foreknowledge of God. Now, what is foreknowledge? Well, some think that foreknowledge means that this plan here, God, he looks down the corridors of time and to see what would happen. In this case, what would happen to Jesus, and then he adjusts his plans accordingly. No, no, that's not what foreknowledge means. To foreknow means to foreordain. He ordained it to happen. He ordained it to come to pass. God knew every part of his plan and how he would accomplish his plan in advance. It was the definite plan of God. Acts chapter 4, notice there, be up on the screen for you. Peter and John have just been released from prison and they're praying with the other disciples. In verse 24, Acts 4, they pray, notice sovereign Lord. So they begin by recognizing God's sovereignty over all of these events. Sovereign Lord who made the heavens and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of your father, our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, and then they quote from Psalm 2. And then they pray, notice in verse 27, for truly in this city they were, delivered, they were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, to do, notice this line, whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. The cross was all according to God's plan. Your hand, your plan had predestined to happen. And not only that, but it was a plan that was put in place before the world began. The cross wasn't plan B. It was always plan A. In fact, in Revelation chapter 13 and verse 8, here's what we read. That before the foundation of the world, there was a book of life of the Lamb that was slain. In other words, there was a book before the foundation of the world, in eternity past, and this book had a name, and the name of that book was the book of the life 
of the lamb who was slain. Now, how can the lamb be slain before the foundation of the world? Answer, it's always been the plan. Or Isaiah 53, prophesying hundreds of years before the coming of Jesus about his coming, about his death, that he would be wounded for our transgressions, he would be crushed for our iniquities, he would lay on him the sin and guilt of us all, and yet in verse 10, here's what we read, it was the will of the Lord to crush him. It's always been the plan of God. In other words, beloved, what this means is that on the cross, Jesus, he isn't suffering as a helpless victim. No, this is no accident of history. This is all part of God's plan. This is all part of God's design. It was God who delivered up his own son to die on the cross. And so the cross, you must know this first and foremost, it must, it must be seen as God's doing. God did this. Now, why would Peter want to remind them of this here? Why does he want the crowd to know this is all part of God's plan? Well, because just a few weeks prior to this, Jesus of Nazareth had been crucified and killed, suffering a humiliating, shameful, cruel death. Messiahs don't die. They conquer. What Peter's doing is he is putting the death of Christ into perspective for us, and he's reminding us, he's reminding us that what was behind this event was the sovereign plan of God. He wasn't a victim. No. This is all according to plan. And yet at the very same time, verse 23, this doesn't cancel out human responsibility either. So yes, it was the good and sovereign plan of God. But look there. Look at verse 23. Peter is also quick to remind us it was the wicked plans of evil men. Verse 23. Notice his death was at the hands of lawless men. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. You crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. John Stott comments, the same event, the death of Jesus, is attributed simultaneously both to the purposes of God and the wickedness of men. So, God is able to ordain evil through human acts yet not be blamed for those evil acts. Wow. How's that? It's a mystery. And so, in some mysterious way, behind it all is the sovereign, saving purposes and plans of God. Is that not mind-blowing? How, how do you reconcile God's sovereignty and human responsibility. How do you reconcile those two? Do you know what our response to that kind of mystery should be? And that's what it is. It's a mystery. Instead of 
trying to figure it out. I think, here's what I think. I think we should do what Spurgeon said. Spurgeon said, when I come upon something in the Bible that I can't unravel, I build an altar. In other words, let this mystery lead you to worship this morning, that God put forward his own son to die on the cross. Why? So that he might suffer and die in your place. That he might pay the penalty for your sin on the cross. And let us serve as an anchor for your soul, beloved, that in the deepest, darkest times of your life, remember that the absolute darkest moment in human history, the greatest evil in the world, the most heinous act of injustice, it was ultimately the plan of God to rescue the world. And therefore, whatever mess, whatever deep, dark valley, whatever chaos may be going on in your life right now, there's hope. And you can trust him. It's all according to plan. So we see the life and death planned by God, but then look in verses 24 and 20 to 32. 24 to 32, we see a resurrection that is promised as well. So not only was Good Friday part of the sovereign plan of God, but so also Peter shows us was Easter Sunday. In fact, he says, it had long ago been promised in the scriptures. Second, notice a resurrection promised by scripture. Verses 24 to 32. Verse 24, look there. Peter says, God raised Jesus from the dead. Verse 24, God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. So notice that just as the works of Jesus were God's doing and the death of Jesus was God's doing, so also the resurrection of Jesus was God's doing as well, Peter said. God raised him up. God did it. Now, in verse 24, Peter, he sort of mixes his metaphors. Not supposed to do that, but Peter did it, so. He mixes his metaphors, and notice the two metaphors he uses here in verse 24. First, the metaphor of loosing. So the, the image of of being bound by ropes, being bound by chains, and being loosed. Death holds people in captivity. No, no one has a say-so in the matter of death. No, we are, we are shackled. We are bound because of our sin in death. But Christ's resurrection has loosened those chains. Loosing, he says. And then in verse 24, notice the second metaphor there. The pangs of death. Now, what are pangs? The three other places that word pang is used, it is used to describe labor pangs, birthing pangs. Now, I've never birthed a child. And ladies, I don't want to minimize it either. But I do know one thing. They don't stay in there forever. They always come out. 
covered talking to a mother who's past her due date. You know, what, what can I say? I'm a guy. The one encouragement I was get, would give would be, it's going to come out. <laughs> it has to come out. It doesn't always stay in. And when the baby's ready to come out, mama can't hold it in. And in a similar way, Peter is saying, the grave itself was in the pangs of labor. The, the tomb was like a womb. And it couldn't hold him in. You know, the cords of death, they had to be loosened. In fact, it was not possible for Jesus to stay dead, he says. So it was impossible for Jesus to stay in the grave. Listen, the real miracle of the resurrection wasn't that God raised a dead man. The real miracle was he actually stayed in for three days. It was not possible for him to be held by it. Now, why was it impossible for Jesus to stay in the grave? Well, the Bible gives many reasons. Number one, because Jesus himself had no sin. He was sinless. Romans 6.23 says, the wages of sin is death. What we have earned because of our sin is death. So death had no claim on him because he was without sin. And so if he stayed in the grave, it would prove he was guilty like the rest of us. But he couldn't stay dead because he was, in fact, righteous. No, the death he died was our death. And so the resurrection is the vindication that Jesus is the righteous one. Death could not hold him in. It had no hold on him. However, that's not the reason Peter gives for why it was impossible for Jesus to stay in the grave. So what's the reason he gives? Look at verse 25. For, notice that word there, or because, for, David says concerning him, so Peter says the reason that Christ must be raised from the dead is because David says so. Meaning it was promised. And then in verses 25 to 28, notice Peter quotes Psalm 16. It's a psalm of David speaking of Christ's resurrection some 10 centuries earlier. And then in verses 29 to 32, notice Peter explains how his resurrection fulfills David's psalm. That David wasn't talking about himself, but about Christ. Notice first what the scriptures predicted. Look there, verses 25 to 28. Notice Peter, he quotes here from Psalm 16, verses 8 to 11. And, and as he starts out, notice it's clear that David at first is talking about himself. Look at verse 25, he says... I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand, and I, that I may dwell and not be or may not be shaken. Therefore, my heart was glad, and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh will also dwell in hope. So David, he's talking about himself. He's expressing here his own confidence in the Lord who's going to stand by him in his own death. But about halfway through verse 27, 
you realize David's no longer talking about himself. No, now he's talking about somebody else. Verse 27, for you will not abandon my soul to Hades. The word Hades, it just means the grave. It doesn't mean hell. Hades is where the dead go. Hebrew word is Sheol. You will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. I don't know about your translation, but mine's capitalized, Holy One. So David says, God isn't going to let his Holy One see corruption. He's not going to let him rot in the grave. Now, who's the Holy One? Well, notice what the Scripture pointed to. That's what it predicted. Here's what it points to. Look at verses 29 to 32. So verse 29, Peter begins his explanation of Psalm 16. Look what he says in verse 29. Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried and his tomb is with us to this day. In other words, the reason that we know that Psalm 16, the Psalm of David, isn't about David is because we know where David's buried. You can go dig up his bones. Take a school field trip to go visit his tomb. He saw corruption in the grave. No, but you can't say the same about Jesus. Back, look at verse 32. This Jesus, God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses. We, we have seen him. We, we touched him. We ate with him. Appearing to more than 500 eyewitnesses. Richard Bauckham, in his book, Jesus and the Eyewitnesses, he says that in the Gospels, and in Acts, but in the Gospels specifically, when, when you see the Gospels mention people by name, it's like a, a footnote. It's like a citation where you can go back and get the truth. So, for example, in Mark chapter 15, when we read about Simon of Cyrene, who carries the cross of Jesus, and it says he's the father of Alexander and Rufus, why would Mark want to tell us their names? Go ask them. We saw him. We were eyewitnesses. Which means he's alive. And it means that David must be speaking prophetically here about somebody else. In fact, look in verse 30. Being therefore a prophet, David was a prophet, and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on the throne, he foresaw, so God allowed him to see this, and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. Now what is Peter, or excuse me, yeah, what is Peter talking about here, this oath to, to David? That God swore an oath to David. You see it there? If you remember in 2 Samuel 7, God makes a promise. He makes a covenant with David that one of David's sons, one from his line, is going to sit on the throne forever. 
And Peter says, that one from David's line, the, the, the holy one of Psalm 16, it is Jesus. And so this psalm, it is ultimately pointing to Christ. In fact, this psalm is ultimately pointing to Easter Sunday. He did not see corruption in the grave. God didn't abandon Jesus to the grave. He didn't allow his flesh to see corruption. No, three days after he died our death, three days after he suffered the wrath of God for us, God raised him up. In other words, he vindicated him as the son of David and the son of God. Only by his resurrection could he reign forever. Never to die again. It's all according to plan. And the resurrection is proof that he is both, verse 36, Lord and Christ. It's promised. Which leads to the final point of his sermon. Verses 33 to 36, notice an exaltation pronouncing him as Lord of all. An exaltation pronouncing him as Lord of all. In other words, God exalted him. So God attested to Jesus, verse 22. He delivered up Jesus, verse 23. He raised Jesus, verse 24. And now he exalts Jesus, verse 33 and 36. Look at verse 33. Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. Now, what is Peter talking about here? He's talking about the ascension of Christ, the exaltation of Christ. Spoken of back, if you look in chapter 1 of Acts, verse 9, they were looking on, and they were, or as they were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. So, this is where Jesus, upon his resurrection, after 40 days, he ascends into heaven to take his seat now as the Lord of all. Where he's sitting now at the right hand of the Father. And, and from his throne now, where he reigns, he has now poured out his spirit, which is exactly what's happening here in Acts chapter 2, as the spirit comes and the gospel begins to spread. And so verses 36, 33 to 36 are describing the ascension and exaltation of Christ as Lord of all. And, and notice, Peter goes again to the Old Testament to prove this. In fact, he returns again to another psalm of David. Look at verse, verses 34 and 35. It's Psalm 119. Look there. For David did not ascend into the heavens. His body's still in the grave. Verse 29, right? Go look. But he himself says, David does, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. The most quoted Old Testament scripture in the New Testament. So verses 34 and 35, he quotes Psalm 110. But even before that, 
Jesus had quoted Psalm 110. You remember? Look back with me for just a moment. Luke chapter 20, volume 1 from Luke. Luke chapter 20, verse 41, where Jesus, while the religious leaders are trying to catch him in a pickle, he actually turns the tables. Luke 20, verse 41, but he, Jesus, said to them, how can they say that the Christ is David's son? For David himself says in the book of Psalms, and then he quotes from Psalm 110, the Lord said to my Lord, sit in my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. David thus calls him Lord, so how is he his son? <laughs> how can he be David's son and David's Lord? What is Jesus saying here? What's going on? Well, the, the common understanding among the Jews is that the Messiah would be the son of David. But Jesus, he's not contesting that. No, what Jesus is pressing them to consider is whether or not they have room in their theology for a Messiah to be more than a son of David, but in fact to be David's Lord. Fathers don't usually refer to their descendants as Lord. It's usually the other way around. So how can David call his son, his descendant, Lord? That's quite a pickle, isn't it? And in verse 34, look there, Peter quoting Psalm 110, he says, The Lord, I have no idea why the ESV doesn't translate it in all caps. That's what it is. L-O-R-D, capital Lord. This is Yahweh, the Lord, God's name, said to my Lord, that's David's Lord. So David hears Yahweh saying to my Adonai, verse 34, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. I don't know if I need to tell you this, but anyone, anyone who sits at Yahweh's right hand is exercising the authority of Yahweh himself. So this would put David's future son on the throne of God himself. My Lord. And Peter says, that Lord is Jesus. He is the son of David. He is David's Lord. He is the one who has been exalted and seated upon the very throne of God himself. And he now rules, and he now reigns on high over all. It is an exaltation that has pronounced him both Lord and Christ. In fact, verse 36, let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. He's Lord and King of all. And now every knee must bow and every tongue must confess that Jesus Christ is Lord and it's all according to plan. To exalt his son. And so Peter's answer here to that question, raised back, notice in verse 21, who is this Lord? 
Who is this Lord that we must call upon in order to be saved? And Peter answers, it's Jesus of Nazareth. You must call on him in order to be saved. He alone is Lord and Christ. And that's his sermon. So what sort of application can we draw from Peter's sermon this morning? First, I think the application of this sermon is very clear. It's very clear. You know how to apply this sermon, Peter's sermon? First of all, repent. Turn to Christ. Repent. After all, that's, that's the response of the crowds here after hearing this sermon. Look at verse 37. Now, when they had heard this, they were cut to the heart. They were, they were convicted of their sin. They, were, they recognized they were guilty. They recognized they were sinners. They recognized they were enemies of this Christ. And said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? How do we respond to this sermon? Verse 38, Peter said to them, Repent. So the very first step, the very first response is to this message to repent. Why? Because Jesus will conquer all of those who are in rebellion against him. In fact, look back at verse 35. Look there. He says, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. So right now, as Jesus reigns on high, as Lord and King of all, God is putting all of Jesus' enemies beneath his feet. His, his footstool, he says. The image here is of a conquering king who has placed his foot on the neck of his enemies. And it's a sign of their impending doom, their defeat. And God is putting every enemy under the feet of Christ because he is Lord of all. In fact, Psalm 110 speaks of this. You look there, it'll be up on the screen for you. Psalm 110, verses 5 and 6. He says, the Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter kings on the day of his wrath. He will execute judgment among the nations, filling them with corpses. He will shatter chiefs over the wide earth. This is what the son of David will do. Revelation chapter 19 speaks of Jesus in the very same way. It says he treads the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. Revelation chapter 20, verse 15, if anyone's name is not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Friends, that's what you've got to be saved from. And only his death could satisfy the wrath of God and pay for your sins and reconcile you to God. He will defeat his enemies. And this world, we know, is headed for judgment. And Peter is calling us, God is calling us to be saved by siding with Jesus now to give him our allegiance now, by turning to him now. So have you repented? Have you called on the name of the Lord? If you do, you will be saved. But now is the time to repent. Second application. Beloved, rest assured, everything is going according to plan. Though it may not seem like it. Probably didn't seem like it on Good Friday. 
but God had a plan. And so then, no matter what may be happening in your life, it may be the darkest valley of your life right now. If he was in charge of those events, the darkest moments in history, he's in charge of your life. And Christ was forsaken on the cross so that you never would be. God has a plan. Finally, third application. All of God's promises are yes and amen in Jesus. I mean, here just in Acts chapter 2, we see at least three quotations from the Old Testament already. Two chapters in. And every single one of them is fulfilled through the finished work of Christ. He is the yes and the amen to every single one of God's promises. In fact, let me, let me just show you this in Psalm 16. And we'll end here. We see that David, he's taking refuge in God. Preserve me, O God, verse 1, for in you I take refuge. Verse 5, that the Lord is my portion and cup, and I will not be shaken, verse 8. Verse 11, God will make known to me the paths of life. I'm going to experience joy and fullness in his presence forevermore. And he takes hope in the fact that God will raise the dead, and he'll raise him from the dead. Verse 10, for you will not abandon my soul to Sheol. So David believes he hopes in the resurrection of the dead, his own resurrection. Why? Because he's a good person? Verse 10, because he knows God won't let his holy one see corruption in the grave. You see, you see what he's saying here? He is trusting in Christ. And he knows that all the promises of God, even the promise of his own resurrection, is found in Christ. And so only in so far church, as we are united to Christ by faith, do we have the assurance that one day we too will escape death because Jesus is the first fruits of our resurrection as well. Because brothers and sisters, God, all of his promises are yes and amen in Christ. Exactly what Paul says in Romans, or 1 Corinthians 15. And in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead the first fruits of those who've fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come the resurrection of the dead. Hallelujah. He's alive. Let's pray. Oh, Father, we do worship this morning a risen Savior. We worship a Christ who has been raised from the dead, who has been seated at the right hand of majesty on high, ruling and reigning even now. He's alive, and we worship the risen Jesus today. And Lord, I pray this morning that as we look to the cross and we look to the empty tomb, we would be reminded that it's all according to your sovereign plan, and that we have victory over death because of Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. It's because of the cross and the empty tomb that this table here now is filled with meaning. It's filled with significance.
It was that very same week, it was the Thursday before Good Friday, where Jesus, if you remember, he gathered with his disciples in that upper room that would be the final meal before his death and resurrection. And he gave them two signs, two pictures, two symbols, two images to serve as reminders of what he was about to do. Mark chapter 14, we read, and as they were eating, he took bread, and after blessing it, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, take, this is my body. And he took the cup, and we had given thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank it, and he said to them, this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. Truly I say to you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. So the bread and the cup, the body and the blood given for us. And they took it, they ate it, they drank it. In other words, they received it. And that's exactly what we're about to do. By eating, drinking, as a picture, we are receiving the body and blood of Jesus by faith. So we don't believe these actually become the body and blood. We don't believe that you are saved by eating these. They're visible pictures of a spiritual reality of trusting in, receiving, believing in Christ. Which means that this meal is only for those who believe. And so if that's not you today, I would say, don't take this meal. It means nothing for you. It will mean nothing to you. It cannot save you. But if you are receiving, if you are believing, if you are trusting, then we invite you to come. If you're a believer here this morning, you're not a member of Second Baptist, but you are a believer in Jesus in good standing with your local church, we would invite you to come and to partake of this meal with us. But before we do, if you don't have the elements, I'm going to pass the baskets around, and I want you to take a few moments as Rebecca plays for a moment of silent prayer, reflection, confession.
So on that night, Jesus, he took the bread. John chapter 6, we read this. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. And he took the cup that very night. John chapter 6 again, Jesus says this, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of God and you drink his blood by faith, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. Let's pray. Oh, Father, we praise you, we praise you for sending your Son. Jesus, we praise you that you willingly went to the cross to bear our sin and shame. That, God, you raised him from the dead because the grave couldn't hold him. Spirit, we thank you that you've opened our eyes to this reality. And so we praise you, our triune God, for the work, for the plan, long ago planned in eternity past to rescue and redeem your people. All glory be to your name. And all God's people said, amen. Let's stand. Let's sing together. Behold the Lamb who bears our sins away, slain for us. And we remember the promise made that all who come in faith find forgiveness at the cross. So we share in this bread of sacrifice as a sign of our bonds of peace around the table of the King. The body of our Savior, Jesus Christ, torn for you. Eat and remember the wounds that heal the death that brings us life paid the price to make us one so we share in this bread of life and we drink of his sacrifice as a sign of our bonds of love cleanses every stain of sin shed for you. Drink and remember he drank death's cup that all may enter in to receive the life of God.
And so with thankfulness and faith we rise to respond and to remember our call to follow in the steps of Christ as his body here on earth. As we share in his suffering, we proclaim Christ will come again and will join in the feast of heaven around the table of the King. As we share in his suffering, we proclaim Christ will come again and will join in the feast of heaven around the table of the King. Christ is risen and he is coming again. And just as he promised, we will feast with him again on that day when he comes if you're here this morning, it's good to see you. If you're a guest with us, you know, I don't know why you come on Easter Sunday. Maybe you, you're here because you were invited. Maybe you're here to check a religious box. But if you've got questions, we'd love to talk with you. We'd love to see as a response the same way those who responded, what must we do to be saved? And remember, Jesus even there, or Peter even there is talking to religious people. Maybe you've been coming to church your whole life. But you have questions, and maybe God has opened your eyes to who Jesus is. Come and see one of us. We'd love to talk with you. Receive this benediction as you leave on this Easter Sunday morning. Now may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May he lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. You are dismissed. We trust you were encouraged by the message you heard. For more information about our church, visit us online at www.2bcmtv.org or call us at 618-244-1706. And thank you for listening.